there's really just two things I'm going to focus on today. And let me tell them to you right now uh, at the beginning. First, what is a biblical view of debt? Of debt. A biblical view of debt. As a Christian who wants to honor God, is it wrong for me to have debt and to owe money? And for most of us, if it is wrong, we're, in all, we're all in trouble. Um, but we should be honest with the scripture and let it say what it says. But what I'll do is I'll give us four conclusions after looking at Old and New Testament teachings. Four conclusions we can make about debt and about owing money. That sort of thing. And then... Um, the second thing will be to apply this to the issue of love, because that's actually the main focus of the passage, is it mentions debt as a way of teaching us an important lesson about love. And love in a very practical sense in our lives. And that's, in all reality, this is the problem. Love in our culture is entirely impractical. It's like we think of love as this non-practical thing, but in, in scripture and in biblical terminology and in reality, love is incredibly practical. It's incredibly live it out application stuff when it comes to the idea of love. So let's look at Romans 13 verse 8, continuing our, our verse by verse study through the book of Romans, just picking up where we left off. Here we are in verse 8 and it says, Oh, no one anything, oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this verse may have been misused in your life. Those first four words actually right there are the ones that I've seen misused. And I want to say, hey, let's undo that. <laughs> let's get, hit control Z. Let's undo if there's been abuse in your life. Um, what I've heard people do is take this phrase, oh, no one anything. And even as a younger Christian, they told me, I mean, like spiritual leaders, guys I looked up to, who told me, you should never, ever have debt as a Christian. Like you should never have debt. It should never happen in your life as a believer. And this really changes your life, doesn't it? Because you go off, I'm never going to have debt. Then that changes how I get a car. And that changes how I get a home. If I ever get a home. And for most of us, that means never owning a home. Because you'll have to pay rent. You're never going to be able to afford to buy a home straight out. And a down payment and a loan would be debt. And it would violate that principle of never owing anyone anything. See, because that's no longer, it's no longer about wisdom. It's not like, is it a good idea for me to get into this debt? It's just a moral rule. You just, you don't get into debt, moral rule. Not, is this situation legitimate? Is it wise now? That's not even a question. Now, personally, I'm down. If that's what God says, I'm going to obey him. Like, God, you, you control my wallet, as, as pathetic as it may be. It's all under your control. And I'm down with, with doing whatever you want me to do with my money and trusting you with the results and believing that you'll provide according to your will. But is that really what it means? That's the real question. That's the question at hand. And I, I think that it's, it's not. So we're going to get into that today. Um, because if it is what it means, here's the consequences. It's not just home and car loans. Like, if you can't ever owe anyone anything, can you like, you, you know, you get there to buy lunch and you realize you left your wallet or purse at home and you tell your buddy, hey man, can you get me? I'll get you back later. Hey, wait a minute. Owe oh, oh, no man anything. You can't even do that. You're out of, you're out of like uh, gas for your lawnmower and you go to your neighbor's house and you knock on the door and you say, hey, can I, can I use your gas for, for my lawnmower real quick? Is that okay? I'll get you back. No, you can't do that. Like, I, don't, I mean, can you even borrow a pencil? If this is a, a straight, strict, unbreakable rule, can I even borrow a pencil that I've forgotten? Or as I frequently do, I borrow guitar picks from people, right? As a worship leader. <laughs> we all take turns borrowing guitar picks from one another because we all randomly forget them. And um, are we violating something in that? Well, first off, is it just plain sinful to have debt? Is, is debt a sinful thing in the very beginning in any sense? In fact, some people say debt is like sin. Sin is a debt, and therefore all debt is sin. But I think this is a problem. Um, 
first off, when we look at the text, God never expressly forbids borrowing. And I think even in this Romans passage, which I'll come back to in a moment, but first we'll survey some Old Testament scriptures. But God never in the Old Testament, he never forbids borrowing. In fact, Jesus actually commands us to lend. So think of these words of Jesus. If borrowing is always a sin, why did Jesus say, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow you, do not turn away. Borrow you, not borrow from you, not borrow you, I don't know what that would mean, but borrow from you, do not turn away. Don't turn them away. So if I'm to give to the person borrowing, am I not, if it's always a sin to borrow, am I not helping them sin if that's the situation? And I think that it, that it is. Um, so I think that that kind of helps us go, wait, Jesus had an attitude of give, be generous and give. Sometimes for people, borrowing is actually how they're going to get by. It's not like they're borrowing because they want something that they shouldn't have or they're just being carnal. Sometimes they're borrowing because they're like, if I don't take this loan out, I'm not going to be able to live. Like basic necessities are getting paid for because of this thing. And that does happen. Other times it seems to be a wise investment. Other times, and more often than not probably, it was a bad decision. Um, in most probably debt scenarios and situations. But while God doesn't forbid borrowing in the Bible, he forbids the abuse of the borrow of the borrower by the borrowee. What, the, the lender? <laughs> is borrowee a word? Yes, it is. Borrowee is a word, I declare, with all of the authority of my made-up dictionary. So God forbids the abuse of the borrower. He says not to abuse the borrower, the one borrowing. He, he, he doesn't label these problems against the one borrowing, but against the one lending. So let me read to you. In fact, uh, I'll give you time to turn there. Turn to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. And what we're about to do, let me tell you what I'm doing so that there isn't a misunderstanding here, right? We're going into the Old Testament law, not to say we're under the law, but to say that God taught wonderful truths throughout the law, and there's principles we draw from the law, and that's how Paul uses it as well in the New Testament. That's how Christians are to be treating the law, um, is that of giving us principles, not uh, necessarily being under it. The weirdest thing in the world is the person who decides to partially obey the Old Testament law as if they're under it, and ignore the rest of the Old Testament law, as if for some reason that part doesn't count. Whereas the New Testament believer, I think, has a better perspective on things. So, Leviticus 25, verse 35, it says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or or sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. This is to charge interest on the loan. So specifically in ancient Israel, specifically under the Mosaic law that they were given, they were not allowed to charge interest to a fellow Israelite who was poor. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, how much of the debt in our country is being paid off at radical interest, specifically from the poor within our country. Now, that's something that didn't happen in ancient Israel is as much as they obeyed the law of God. They often didn't, but as much as they obeyed it, that did not happen. Turn to Exodus twenty-two twenty-five, And it says something very similar. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five, 25, um, also the Mosaic law speaking to us about about this idea of debt and borrowing and lending. In fact, lending seems to be assumed that it's going to be necessary in the lives of certain people, but they're told not to do something, and it's here. 
If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. You shall not charge him interest. So that's that's like demanded. Like, do not do not do this. Don't charge interest. This is yet credit cards. I mean, let's be real. Like, I remember back in the day when growing up, I remember hearing the sound of one credit card getting paid with another. You know, and things just getting put off and put off and, and bills being paid with credit cards. Now, part of that was mismanagement of money. Yeah, but part of it was also what happens when someone gets into debt. And this is the issue with debt. Debt damages me. It puts me, especially in a situation where you're borrowing money that you have to pay back in interest. Now, I've, I've uh, you know, me and Allison, we've given money to people, not a lot, but a lot for us, um, where it was just a gift to someone who needed it at a hard time. But we've also loaned money to somebody. And I, I have a weird policy <laughs> Hopefully you don't come ask me for money after this, but I have a weird policy about loaning money. It's like, we don't loan the money unless we can afford to not get it back. And when we loan it, we make sure that that relationship doesn't depend on them paying it back. Look, people are in debt already. They're already don't have enough money. And you're thinking that they're going to just be able to pay you back when they're just trying to pay back other things. And so we loan the money thinking we may never see this again and we'll be okay with that and we'll still love this person and we won't let it affect our friendship or our family relationship. That's, that's our policy. We loan it like we're not going to get it back. And usually that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> and we're fine with it because that that, we went into it like that. So I've never had a relationship broken because of money I gave out that I didn't get back. I've had people who even came years later. I forgot all about it. And they go, man, remember five years ago? You loaned me the, that much money. Here, here it is. Here's your $3, Mike. Thanks. And, um, and it was like just at the right time because that's what I needed for my taco. <laughs> so the, the loaning to, to, the, uh, to the poor is kind of assumed. It's not rebuked. The poor is not rebuked in these scenarios. Rather, the lender is cautioned. Don't abuse your place of taking advantage of this person who, need, who has need and who is, who is desperate. I wonder as a Christian, maybe not to take this as, as we're under the law, but as a Christian who's perhaps in the banking industry, like, I wonder if there's a way to incorporate these, these truths in having different loan rates, at least for the poor and say, you know, we're not going to take advantage of them. We're not going to keep them in the poorhouse because they're just paying off the interest only on these loans at the end of every, uh, every month or quarter or every time it's due. Uh, perhaps there is. But there are warnings against, against uh, the lenders. There's also a warning to the borrowers to turn to Proverbs 22, verse 7, Proverbs 22, 7. This is where the book of Proverbs actually gives a warning to the person who's about to borrow money. Because sometimes we want to borrow money so we can buy stuff that we don't really need. That we don't absolutely have to have. That it's more of like, oh, I just want, I want, I want. And you know this because someone lives in a torn down, messed up house, right? But they drive up with their nice car. And then that car is looking good. And it's not just nice. It's got $5,000 worth of amazing rims on this car. It's got a $2,000 sound system in this car. And yet, like, the door of the house is like, got holes in it that the cats go in and out with. You know, it's like weird things going on. This is, you know, something's not right in the priorities here. Um, just in a practical sense. Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Borrowing is not free money. Borrowing is, is getting money at a cost that's higher than the money. <laughs> so you're paying for it. I remember talking to someone who um, spontaneously went and bought a new car. And I asked them, I, I was like, wow, you bought this new car? And they go, yes. And they bought the one off the lot that was an impulse buy. They bought the, the, the floor model one that had all the special features. Back when GPS was like brand new, 
when it was like really shiny and it was really big and it directed you wrong. <laughs> it was still kind of a technology and development. And I asked him, I said, wow, how much was the car? And they told me the sticker price they paid. And I said, yeah, but, but how much? It was a relative. I wasn't just being nosy. And I was like, yeah, but how much did you like pay after these finance charges? And they went, I don't know. And I thought, that's a little scary, isn't it? Like, I don't even know what I'm paying for this thing. This isn't wisdom. This isn't wisdom to get into a situation like that. At least find out, you know, are you paying $25,000 for the thing you thought was 16 at the end of this, you know, uh, payment cycle? The rich rules over the poor and the borrower's servant to the lender. So don't kid yourself. You become their servant. And it's, it's pretty serious. It's pretty serious stuff. People, especially people who are making payments on just the interest, interest only payments. That's like the worst possible situation. Financially speaking, you're literally just throwing money away. Um, now there may be a situation where you're like, I had no choice. I had to take this loan. It was the only option I had, in which case my heart goes out to you. I'm bothered that someone took advantage of your poverty in that situation. But that's the truth remains that the borrower is servant to the lender. So this is not a sin issue. This is a wisdom issue. You want to avoid debt like the plague whenever it seems possible or reasonable to avoid debt. But that doesn't mean all debt is always wrong. I don't think that this is a prohibition against borrowing because the book of Proverbs doesn't even work that way, right? The book of Proverbs isn't like that. The book of Proverbs is like, hey, keep this in mind in life. Remember this general principle so that you can be aware of what's going on. There may be a very good time to borrow, a very smart time to borrow, and there's many ventures and activities and things, including people who own homes, that it was like, I borrowed, I bought the home, and then the market changed, and I had equity in the home I never would have had, and it was like, it worked out perfect for me, and there may be really good times to do that. But then there's also some other warnings I want to mention, and that's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. The warning here is about the love of money. You guys know this one well, right? But let's read it like with fresh ears. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. <coughs> it says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, to back up for a second, the context is this. Paul is railing against these, these scratching, itchy ears, right? And they'll call up teachers who are basically carnal teachers. People want false teachers for their basically selfish motives. And they bring up these teachers. And among other things, these teachers think that godliness is a means of gain. Financial gain. That godliness is a means of gain. I mean, this has got to be shouted from the rooftops. Like, this is a verse for our time. I've been studying recently, preparing for some of the, the Tuesday live streams that I've been doing, and seeing these prosperity preachers and how they preach that godliness is a means of gain. I mean, that's exactly what they're preaching. And it, it uh, kind of breaks my heart. But here's the biblical teaching. It says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Because godliness with the mean, as, a, as a means of gain, all it really does is inflame your desire for more, 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 more. And it kills my contentment. I'm not content with what I have. I'm constantly like, Lord, give me more, give me more, give me more. Instead of accepting what God's given me, what's really gaining in my life is when I gain contentment <laughs> with godliness and I'm just happy with what I've got. And then godliness is, is, is its own end. I'm going to be godly to honor God. That's it, not to get him, get him to give me stuff. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I, this, is, this is, you know, we, we like to say, um, um, you can't take it with you. That's like basically the modern phrase we use. You can't take it with you, you know, but you can send it on ahead. <laughs> That's, that is, you live in Christ, you live for Christ, and you're storing up treasures in heaven. 
So you brought nothing to this world and you can carry nothing out, unlike the Egyptians who thought you could. Right? That's why they stored all this, these hordes as they buried themselves, unlike the Norse um, who would bury their hoard of treasures to try to send it forward to the next life or that sort of thing. Or even a Buddhist funeral you go to today where they take hell notes. That's what they call them. That's not my term. H-E-L-L, hell notes. And they burn money and throw it into the, into the hole in the ground. Um, and that's supposed to send it forward into that person's some type of afterlife, which is, that's more of a modern interesting version of Buddhism. I'm not sure where they get that belief from, but they, but I've been at those services and have seen that. But the biblical teaching is you can't take it with you. So that's why often Christians are like, when I die, just do whatever's cheapest. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what the box looks like that you put me in. You know, I just want to help you guys out because at that point, all my inheritance is for you. Don't spend it on me. So Christians, instead of building monuments for themselves when they pass away, they're trying to, to push it off to their kids and their family and ministries that they want to support, things like that, when they pass. Because they're not taking it. They're like, no, I got a whole mansion in heaven. You, 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 you take what's left down here. In verse 8, it says, And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Notice the contentment doesn't mean you're content where you're like starving to death. But it, it's the contentment is, Lord... I'm content. I have food. I've got clothing. God, you're providing enough for me, and I thank you for that. Um, I, don't, I don't think we're guaranteed riches or wealth, but we were told by Jesus that we shouldn't worry about food and clothing in particular in Matthew 6. He told us, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these will be added. And these were food and clothing. It was just the basic necessities, the bare necessities, those simple bare necessities of life. Can't help it. But, verse 9, those, and this is the part that, that, oh, sorry. Yeah, verse 9, this is the part that hits my heart. And I've seen so many believers in this spot. So let's get it into our, our minds and hearts too. But those who desire to be rich, it doesn't say those who are rich. It says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition means waste. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So from start to finish, the love of money, the desire to be rich. Oh, I just want to be rich. I want to be rich so bad. This is a carnal and ungodly desire. And if I try to make it better, right? Like, like the people that want to win the lottery. Oh man, if I win the lottery, first thing I would do is tithe. Now I feel good about my desire to be rich. You know, <laughs> I have to go like this. Like when I see all oh, that nice house, that nice car, this person with this nice whatever, and I'm like, man, I want that. I have to stop and go, wait, that part of me, this part of me needs to be set aside. I can, I'm glad they have that. I can appreciate the quality of something. I can be like, that's well made. That's really nice. But the desire to be rich, the desire, not riches, the desire, that's the problem. The desire is the issue. Um, so God never rebukes people for having wealth. It's our attitude towards wealth. And it may well be that the poor are more prone to the desire to be rich than the rich are because the rich go, yeah, this ain't what you think it is. Yeah, I'm already doing it. Trust me, this doesn't have the things that you think it has. And they look out and say, you know, marriage is more important. Your relationship with God is more important. These other things are more important, but people get obsessed with the money. And it, it can cause them to stray from the faith itself in their greediness, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So this is a really, really serious warning in the New Testament against the desire to be, to be wealthy. So wealth isn't the problem, but desiring it is. 
Now, if there's uh, back to borrowing, right? If there's any verse that specifically forbids borrowing, though, it's not in the Old Testament. If there's any verse in the whole Bible that specifically forbids borrowing, it would only be in Romans 13, 8, where it says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. But I want to show you that in context, that's not what this verse means. In context, this verse is not about never coming into debt, but it's about always paying your debts. That's the thing. And that's the context, right? Because the verse before it, it says, give give things to the person you owe them to. Taxes, customs, fear, honor. You give fear to whom fear is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, taxes or customs to the person you owe them to. So there's an assumption that you already are owing things. So the verse following is about paying what you owe. So how does it apply to debt? It applies like this. If you do have debt, keep up on your payments. That's really the application. Just keep up on your payments. Don't just declare you know, bankruptcy every five seconds in life. I don't know how that works, actually, the bankruptcy. I know it's complicated and there's a lot of chapters involved. <laughs> I haven't read that book yet. But, but keep up on your payments. And that is actually a moral like truth from the Old Testament as well. Let me read it to you. Psalm 37, 21, it says this, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. The righteous is the giver. They're the giver, the lender, right? But the wicked, they borrow and they don't give back. They don't pay back. So as a Christian, I can apply this to to money. Oh, no one anything. But it applies to payments, not loans. That's how it applies. I need to make sure I'm keeping up on my payments. As a Christian, if I owe them money, I might be like, well, they're a big company, so what do I care? You know, what do they care if one person doesn't pay? No, no, this is a moral principle as a believer. I pay what I owe. Now, as a Christian, I would never demand someone else pay me money that I borrowed from them. But if I was the one who received the money and I borrowed it, I would consider it a moral mandate to pay it back. I would consider it part of my my Christian like obedience to God to pay back the thing that I owe. And there may come times where you cannot pay it back. Like you, you just literally don't have any money. But, but you keep that moral mandate at, at the forefront of your mind. So that's a moral issue. So here's the conclusions. I'll give you four conclusions about debt, about getting loans and things like that. One conclusion is avoid debt where you can. That's wisdom based on Proverbs because the, the borrower is servant to the lender. So avoid debt where you can. That's just a wisdom issue. Some people are successful in avoiding debt completely. Don't feel like you're more righteous than other people because of this. Good for you. That's great. But um, but yeah, don't do I just bought my house straight out. You're like, well, that's great. Well, I live in Southern California and I don't have $500,000 laying around. Thank you very much. It's, and nor will I ever <laughs> in all reality. So... We have to be reasonable about these things. So yeah, it's good to avoid debt where you can. Uh, Number two, second conclusion, pay the debts you owe. That's not just wisdom. That's a moral obligation as a believer to pay the debts I owe and not to um, have to change my phone number six times to avoid all the calls from the debt collection agencies, (laughs) but to actually pay what I owe. Number three, help those in need. Third conclusion, help those in need without taking advantage of their lack. That's also a moral obligation as a believer. When I see someone in need and I'm able to help, I'm going to help the person in need. And I will not use this as a moment to get control of their life or to cause them to pay me back with great interest and things like that. I'm just going to help them. That's, that's a moral thing. And then number four, money is not what this verse is primarily about. That's the fourth conclusion, is that this is just, it's drawing a parallel. Here's the money issue, and then the application is, oh, no one anything except to love one another. That's the main application. 
So connecting it all together, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So what is implied is that paying my debts is a moral obligation, whether that debt is I owe that person debt of honor. They, they should have honor because of their position, maybe not because of their character, but at least because of their position. Sometimes you salute the rank, so to speak, um, not the person. But there's a there's a thing of love. Actually, I owe people a debt of love, and that changes things for me. I love the Bible does this. What, what we're about to like get into here is a biblical perspective on why I show love and how I show love. And I think it debunks a lot of the love confusion that the culture experiences around us. And there's a lot of love confusion. I already mentioned some, but there's a lot of it. Like the, the world tends to think of love primarily as an emotion, primarily as an experience. But the Bible seems to treat love like it's primarily attitudes and actions rather than emotions and experiences. So what would I always love? Now, our culture is obsessed with being loved. We're obsessed with being loved. And this is why we, we tend to um, maybe treat children like they're obsessed with being loved too. And we, we offer them, a, I want to give a lot of affirmations and positive affirmations and good ways to kids. But sometimes the way some people talk to kids, I think they're just talking to themselves. I feel like they're imagining that they're the kid. And they're really speaking to themselves because there's just this deep need we have. Like, I want to be loved. I want to be loved. I want to be loved. But the more we feed this, sometimes the bigger the hole gets and the larger the chasm becomes within us. I just, I mean, I just want everyone to love me as much as I love me and maybe a little more. That's all. Is that too much to ask? Uh, But that's the world I think we live in. But the focus shifts when we read God's word and the Bible tells us that it's about me loving them, not them loving me. That's different, isn't it? Because I look around and I'm like, well, I don't feel like you're all doing the right job. Well, the problem is you're, you're even looking at them. That's not the point. I'm called to owe you love. Now, there's a difference between a contractual love or a performance-based love versus this kind of love, the biblical love. Um, so the question is, why do I love people? Is it a contract? Is it performance? Like, I love you because dot, dot, dot. Or is that I love people because of who I am or because of who maybe God is? And personally, what gets me the furthest is loving people because of who God is. I mean, I mean, like if I try to love you for who you are, sometimes that gets kind of hard. If I try to love you because of who I am, let's be honest, I run out of fuel in that tank. But if I love you because of who God is, then it continues and it pushes forward. And that love is constant. And that love can happen in any circumstance, any situation, any time. Let's read from 1 John chapter 4. John, the apostle of love. I feel like there should be like a song about that. I'll read uh, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. It says, <coughs> you know the song? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Meaning that our love for each other derives from God's character and who he is in our relationship with him. Skipping up verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, meaning that my motive for loving each other is because I'm reflecting his love to me. I'm not reflecting your love to me or even another human's love, but God's. First John 5, 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who's begotten of him. Meaning that if I really love God, <clears throat> I'm going to love God's children. I'm going to love God's people. 
I think it's safe to say, like in a theological sense, that God loves me because of who he is, not just because of who I am. In a sense, he loves me in spite of who I am frequently, but he loves me because of who he is. And then he says, now, now live out my love to others. So love me because of who, love them because of who I am. Same motive, love them. So then that leads us to the question. Okay, now let's draw it back to Romans 13. Oh, no one, anything except to love one another. So the question is, are you a love lender or a love debtor? What do I mean? I, I think this is really deep and I think this is really cool. And I love that it's not my idea, right? We're just drawing it right out of the passage. Some people act like they are lending love. I'm lending it to you. I expect you to lend it back or to pay it back. And oftentimes with interest. Like, <laughs> you got to give me more than I give you. Um, or I lend it to you and you owe me back. You, owe, you should give me at least as much love as I'm giving out to you. I should receive that much back. And so people have like these careful scales, you know, that they keep in their mind. Like, I did this for you. I called you. You didn't call me. <clears throat> you're cut off. You know, I, I said hi to you. You didn't wave back at me. <clears throat> you're cut off. And we have these like, it's just silly and petty and it's not godly at all. But if I look at love like I'm a debtor, then I look at people and think, I already owe you love. Like I owe it to you. I'm not like, oh, I'm the high and mighty lender. Like I'm just so full of love that I will give you love and you will be loved by me and you will be so blessed because my heart is so big. But instead, if I humble myself and I go, Lord, you're calling me to love people in your name because of what you've done and who you are. I owe them love because of you. That's different. If I think I owe you, it makes my love a humble service instead of some sort of arrogant offering of my goodness in your general direction. God's love and his command is all the motive I need and it totally destroys any excuse I can think of to not love you. Now, if I have debt, I have a moral obligation to pay that debt, right? We went over that. So if I owe people love, like actually owe people love, then I have a moral, moral obligation to show love. Now, this may not help some people. Maybe that you're like, you're making it too like systematic, Mike. But this helps me, okay, <laughs> to look at it this way. And it's biblical. I have a moral debt of love to others because of who God is and what he's done for me. I owe them love. And if, if I look at it that way, if I feel that way about love then it changes how I love people. And I don't love down to people then. I'm not loving down at you. Like you're the lesser and I'm the greater. No. It's humble. So uh, let's keep reading in Romans uh, 13, verse 9. It says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So now he's reminding us that the chief call of, 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 of even the law of God is love, love, love. And he goes on, love does no harm to a neighbor for love is, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, really echoing the teachings of Jesus here, which is just echoing the Old Testament all along. It's always been this way. Now, of the Ten Commandments, you know, one, two, and three are pretty much like about your relationship with God primarily. You know, four through ten are primarily about your relationship, man's relationship to man. Um, and all of them are about love. That's the point here. And then we have five listed, right? Adultery, murder, theft, being a false witness, and then um, uh, not coveting. We have these all mentioned, these five mentioned. But what's interesting is they're mentioned out of order, right? So we have number seven, which is adultery. Then we have number six, which is murder. Then eight, nine, and ten. 
of the Ten Commandments. So this is where, like, you know, people who study the Bible and get really deep, they go, why is it six, why isn't it six, seven, eight, nine, ten? Why is it seven, six, eight, nine, ten? Why is it like that? And they come up with theological reasons. Well, because seven, maybe seven is like the number of God and stuff like that. But I think I figured it out. I think I figured it out. Six, let seven go first, because seven, eight, nine. And six is afraid of seven. I've been waiting like a week to share that dumb joke with you guys. It's terrible. It hurt, but in a good way. <laughs> um, so I don't really think we need to worry about why they're in that order. <laughs> Maybe someone has some better insight and I'll just look like a fool, but I thought it was funny. So adultery, murder, theft, being a false witness or coveting, these are all related to loving one another. And if you're struggling with obeying God in one of these areas, think of it as an act of love to not do those things because it is, it is. And you're getting the heart of the commandment when you think of it that way. I like to imagine what a society would look like if it actually lived by the 10 commandments. Like, could you imagine just what it would be like if there was no theft? There was no lying. Like, if somebody did do something wrong, they would get to court and they would always just confess. We wouldn't even need lawyers. Sorry, lawyers. <laughs> or we would need you for other reasons, but not because of that. What if there was just that lying just didn't happen? Adultery just wasn't a thing. All of our lives would probably be different. Wow. I love thinking about that. This describes a society of people who love each other, doesn't it? Who just obey the Ten Commandments. I think it really does. I think it does. You wouldn't need locks, alarms, prisons, police, except to help old ladies. <laughs> but check this out. Imagine the wonder of heaven where we're walking in perfect unity with the law of God written in our hearts, in fellowship with one another, but without any of the sin, pride, any of the wickedness of the world, because that really ultimately is heaven is going to be us walking in actual biblical love. And I'm looking forward to it. I think, I think we should go right now. <laughs> so I think we should aim as Christians to sample this for the world around us. By, by this, all men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another, to have like this kind of biblical love, like not courtesy. Courtesy is good. We want courtesy, but don't stop there, right? Like love, self-sacrificial love, concern more about you than I am of me thinking more about you than I am of myself. And for us to be doing this across the board, wow. So all the law is about love. And, and love, um, in, a, in a philosophical sense, right, it's our highest moral value as Christians is love. The highest moral value as Christians, which is why we have to clear up the love confusion. Because the world goes, oh, love is your highest moral value. Then they have a twisted version of love that leads people into sin. But scripture says love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. And love is the fulfillment of the law. It's not to get you around fulfilling the law. It's, it's not going to get you around doing what God wants. It's always going to be in obedience to God's holiness. And this is partially because you love God first. As it says in Mark, Jesus' words, Jesus said the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. The second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, he's obviously not speaking about the commandments in order they were given. He's speaking about priority. Love God first, love people next. That is it, man. That's what you need to keep in your foref the forefront of your mind, but with a biblical version of love, not a perverted one. 
So I want to clear up one or two things before we finish. Um, yeah, we're going to end early tonight for once. Remember this moment. Never happened again. Um, I think there's a powerful truth we have to face in this revelation that love, the greatest commandment, means that love is a moral thing, not just a good, like, feeling kind of thing. Because people sometimes try to take holiness and have it compete with love. And they use love as an excuse to downgrade holiness or to downgrade the Christian life. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can probably think of examples of this. Like, I know it's wrong, but we love each other. That's not biblical. It'd be, I know it's wrong, and we love each other, so we won't do it. Like, that would be, that would be love being played out in that scenario. That's just desire, not love. The truth is, if I'm not loving, I'm not really moral. And if I'm not moral, I'm not really loving. You can't separate the two really, truly, I don't think. But some of us, we, we tend to focus on the sanctity of the Christian life. But that sanctity isn't the same thing as holiness and morality. And so moral means loving. So there are some people who are, are walking very carefully, very strictly in their lives. And this is not bad. This is good, right? They're trying to keep their heart clean before God, their life clean before God. But they're kind of jerks to other people. <laughs> and they don't really represent God's love to them. And in this, I would say there's a massive gap. And guess where it is? It's in the greatest commandments of love. Other people, they think that they're walking in love to people, but they're encouraging people towards sin. They're endorsing their sin. They think love means approval. But that's not what love means. If love means approval and God loves everybody, then why isn't he approving of everything? If God, God's the ultimate example of love, yet there's lots of stuff he doesn't approve of. <laughs> so, so that's not the case. So love and moral are not like competing concepts. They're, they're really one thing. And so if you tend to, to lean towards the side of, of holiness um, and you maybe leave out love a little bit, then maybe come back around and realize these are, these are joined. If you tend to lean towards love, but you leave out holiness, realize that that's not even really love, that they're, they're joined together. I think that's a powerful, powerful truth. So to apply it to my life, here's the question I've got. And I'm, I'm being very honest here. It's, do I consciously walk around with love as my objective? Or am I just focused on the tasks of the day? Um, is the purpose of what I'm doing, is this love? Like, here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching this message. Was this because I'm like, well, I have it scheduled, I'm supposed to teach. You know, I, I want to, I you know, do what I've been, what I've said I'm going to do, fulfill my word. Or is it love that drives me? Love for God to proclaim his truths and honor him. Love for you guys that, it, that hopefully something I'd share would build you up in Christ and grow you in him and encourage you of his goodness. And Is it love or what's my motive that's going on there? That's the question. We need to prioritize this and try to have it at the forefront of our minds, I think, in our daily lives. Like, am I walking in love or am I just trying to have a Christian routine? And there's a big difference. That phrase, love does no harm to a neighbor, it would prob probably be better translated as uh, love does no wrong or evil to a neighbor. It's not just harm. It's wrong or evil so that it's a moral thing. Love is, love is moral. That's how it works. And then love is there the fulfillment of the law. Um, which means that I can learn about biblical love by looking at God's law and the way he has people treating one another in the law. And I can say this teaches me about biblical love because we have to shake off the love confusion that we've been experiencing in our lives. I think we've been raised, like, do not underestimate the influence of Disney cartoons on your brain. 
I mean, they're great cartoons, like in the sense that they're well-produced and they evoke emotions. And we all remember Bambi. And Bambi's mom. The mom. How many people are vegetarians today because of cartoons? Because cartoons humanized animals to the point where they really honestly felt like animals basically were human. And I'll bet you there's a whole group of people out there that, that they've, they've learned this. And how many people today... They think that it's weird to save yourself till marriage because of all the movies and TV shows where nobody does that. It's weird. That's weird. Who would do that? That's weird. I saw on Warner Brothers. <laughs> like how many of us, th these, are, these are the images in our minds. We've got to get re refined, you know, have our minds renewed to see what biblical love is so that we can do this stuff right. Because it never fails that someone preaches about love and then someone else goes out and sins in the name of that love. And we excuse, but love, this is a biblical truth, right? Love does not rejoice in iniquity. So I've got to keep reminding myself, I think of this fact and filter it this way. If it's sin, it's not love. That's there. There, there are two things that cannot be together, right? If it's McDonald's, it cannot be high quality. Like these things do not intersect. Not that I don't want to eat it. That's still true, but, but the, the, they never, they never coexist together at the same time. So, uh, so yeah, let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your word and we pray this. We want to have two things that we draw f away from this, two most important things, two primary things. One is to have in our minds a constant attitude of love, of owing a debt of love to one another. To have that as the, the, the thing that occupies our thinking all the time. But Lord, the second thing we ask you is this, help us to have a pure understanding of what love really is so we don't have the worldly distorted version of it, the watered down, sin-laden version of love that the world promotes. Let it be a love that actually fulfills the law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.